Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Our guest today is a graduate of Harvard Medical School, trained in internal medicine, was an emergency physician, but now has a medical consulting practice in Massachusetts. He's also a Massachusetts spokesperson for Doctors for Cannabis Regulation. His website is inhalemd.com, and joining us from Boston is Dr. Jordan Tischler. Dr. Tischler, good of you to do this. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Now, you are a medically trained doctor with a cannabis practice. What was behind you getting involved in medical cannabis? Interesting story, I think. Um, you know, I, as you mentioned, I uh, trained at, uh, I went to Harvard Medical School, and I trained at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is a fairly well-known hospital here in the Boston area. And um, I would say that my background in medicine is very conventional. I'm not really kind of a hippy-dippy kind of dude, but I guess I've been fairly open-minded over the years, and I've spent the last 15 or so years working for the VA uh, as an emergency room physician. And over that course of time, I really saw drugs and alcohol take their toll. Um, It really is one of these things where you see over and over again, not just people who are intoxicated or otherwise kind of struggling with drugs and alcohol, um, but even the guys who come in with sort of routine medical things, somehow you know, it's all part and parcel of the thing, the same thing where whatever is going on today is complicated by, by these horrible other life circumstances often revolving around substances. So I sort of got, um, you know, a big earful, if you will, of that and really became quite expert at dealing with the acute presentation of these, of these substances. Interestingly, around 2012, when Massachusetts was then considering the ballot initiative to legalize cannabis for medical use, I sort of stepped back and said, well, you know, that's a really interesting idea. You know, I've seen all these guys who have been so radically harmed by these substances, and yet I've never once seen anybody who's harmed by cannabis. I saw plenty of people who came in with cannabis listed as a problem in their medical record, but never anyone actually sick from it. So I started to think, well, look, you know, if we're going to consider this as possible medicine, then I better learn something about it. I then sort of started diving into the medical literature, and it took me several years, but I really came to understand what the state of the understanding was at that time. And I was pretty convinced that this was a relatively benign medicine with great beneficial applications. And that's sort of how my thinking got started. And once I got to the point where I kind of actually knew something, I looked around at my colleagues and said, Hmm. I think I'm probably one of very few people who actually knows any of this stuff. Uh, maybe I need to 
spread the knowledge. And then I also started to look at the institutions for which I work and all of my colleagues and realized that those institutions, because of their involvement with federal grant money, etc., were never going to allow my colleague physicians to pursue this in any fashion. So I realized that the way to do this was to start the private practice so I would be outside of those systems. But because I'm so connected to all of these colleagues, that the opportunity was there to educate them and also then to provide care to their patients through this outside mechanism. And that's really how it started. Dr. Tischler, when you were going through the medical literature on cannabis and you found that it was beneficial and benign, what went through your mind as to why this particular plant, and after all it is a plant, has been illegal for more than 80 years? Well, I think that there are sort of two questions that embedded in that. And one of them is just an aside. The fact that it's a plant to me is, um, you know, that's an argument put forward in the community quite a lot. I'm not terribly swayed by that argument. Um, and this may be showing my sort of conventional side, but I mean, what I often say to patients is, you know, cobra venom is all natural, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's any good for you. Really, my thinking is more based on the science. And um, why has it been illegal? It's been illegal for a whole re- a whole raft of completely non-science-based reasons. I think that we all understand that back in the early part of last century, it was il- made illegal for a series of reasons having to do with protecting the uh, financial interests of, of landed uh you know, wealthy industrialists who had largely in, invested in hardwood forest for particular manufacture of paper where cannabis could threaten that and could be grown in on fairly small amounts of land that were kind of cruddy pieces of land. And that also was um, tied into economic uh, advancement for people of color. And of course, in this country, we couldn't have that. Um, so there were a whole list of reasons there that were political and racial uh, that had absolutely nothing to do with this stuff as a medicine or as a substance or a biological agent or any of those sorts of things. Um, and that mechanism of outlaw stood the test of time until 1969 when it was struck down uh, by the Supreme Court. And that spawned the Controlled Substances Act as a way to continue that prohibition and to particularly go after the hippies and folks who were protesting uh, the war at that time. And uh, we've been stuck with the results of that ever since. When you talk to other doctors in the allopathic field, what are their views on cannabis use as a medicine? You know, it's interesting. That comes up a lot. And I think that most people sort of in the cannabis world uh, are really quite surprised by my answer. I find almost no pushback. Uh, Now, maybe this is because I live up in the sort of liberal northeast or whatever. But at least in my experience, um, most of the doctors I talk to about this sort of thing are very curious and very open to the idea of cannabis as a medicine. Um, What I also get from them is that, at least when we're talking about sort of primary care folk, that they don't really have the knowledge or the time to take it on. 
And so what I'm greeted with is a mixture of curiosity and then relief that I'm there as a resource for them. I really, I mean, I hear from patients the worry a lot that I don't want to talk about this to my doctor because they'll um, stop taking care of me or they'll, um, uh, you know, take away the opiates or whatever that I, I need. And I, I really just haven't had that experience uh, from doctors. That's a very interesting uh, response because we've talked to dozens and dozens and dozens of people around the world, and uh, it's one of the questions that keeps coming up, and it is this. Their doctor either doesn't want to hear about it, puts their hand over their ears, as your doctor did, Corey. Yeah. You didn't want to hear about it until you were uh, cleared. And then he did a 180. Yes. He became very interested. They either don't want to hear about it or they say, you know, pursue what you're doing because you're on the right track, but I can't, because it's illegal, I can't deal with it. Or they say there aren't enough medical studies on it. How do you respond to the last part? There aren't enough medical studies on marijuana. Well, uh, I've certainly um, heard that before, um, more often out of politicians than out of uh, physicians. But I, my general response to that is, look, if you go online uh, to uh, you know medical database like PubMed and you put the word cannabis in, you will return greater than 26,000 studies. And that's a huge number in any field. And by comparison, if you put alcohol in, you'll get about 5,500. So the, the argument that this has not been researched uh, is just completely ridiculous. Now, I have gone toe-to-toe with some old-style drug warriors um, who are quick to point out that the 26,000 studies is a large number, but not all of those studies are super quality, and that's true. And most of those studies were funded by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, which just from its name alone, you can really get the sense that they're only interested in proving how bad this stuff is for you. On the other hand, many of the studies that they funded, like Don Tashkin's pulmonary study, ended up showing that there really wasn't any significant harm. Uh, and so they, you know, the, the scientific reality is what it is. So I think that when you look at this sort of thing, the idea that there isn't enough research is quite ignorant. Whether the quality of the research is what we would like it to be is another discussion. And quite frankly, um, you know, if anybody in the political arena says that it's not high enough quality, then they only have themselves to blame for it for having it in Schedule 1 for the last 40 years, which effectively squashes the ability to do decent and high, high volume, meaning large numbers of people, uh, kind of research. Could we use more research? Well, it's an ar- unarguable. Of course, we can always use more research. We always do. We're doing more research on every subject: cardiology, neurology, etc. Does the does the fact that we could improve our knowledge over time with better funding and fewer restrictions lead to the conclusion that we don't have enough information to make reasonably informed decisions now? No. No, I think we have plenty of research at this point to make intelligent decisions. I think you raise a very interesting point because uh, nobody ever questions the quality of research on pharmaceutical drugs. Nobody ever questions the quality of the research on opioids. 
do the pharmaceutical companies use ghostwriters to to do it? Is the quality of the study uh, what it should be? In the United States in 2015, 33,000 people died of opioid use, and half of those were on prescription drugs. Nobody, to the best of my knowledge, has ever died from having too much marijuana, yet the stigma surrounding marijuana is worse than that of pharmaceutical painkillers. So how do we change that perception? Oh, that's a big question. Um, I think that we're doing the right things here. Uh, I think that one of the things we have to recognize is that the stigma around cannabis has built up over such a long period of time with such active intervention going back to Nixon and Reagan um, that, you know, changing it overnight or even over a decade seems just improbable. But I think we're, we're, you know, we've seen this conversation nationally move from nearly a standstill to a fairly, uh, energetic discussion over the last, you know, less than 10 years. So I think we're going in the right direction. You know, I do have some fears, um, as we, move forward that we can do it in injustice insofar as um as with all medicines there are pluses and minuses to cannabis as a medicine um and nothing is good for everybody for every problem all the time and to some extent uh you know as in cannabis enthusiasts out there are saying you know this is great for this and great for that i think that you know, that almost harms things insofar as it sort of discredits the reality. So I think that we need to be a little bit careful. Uh, you know, obviously we want to dispel the reefer madness stuff on the one hand, but if we let the pendulum swing too far in the other direction, then it becomes kind of more like magic than like medicine. And that probably not good for its credibility and its acceptance, uh, either. Dr. Tischler, in your practice, do you deal exclusively with cannabis use? Yes. Can you give us an overview of your patient profile? Are they older, younger? Yeah. Um, so uh, I think that my practice is kind of interesting. I've set up my practice with some, you know, real eye to um, trying to do this well, if you will, Um You know, there are unfortunately lots of practices out there across the country where, you know, if you have a pulse and $200, you can get a card. And for that, you get a card and then you're off and you go do whatever you want to do. And, um, you know, talking, as I mentioned a few paragraphs ago about keeping, you know, discrediting things, I don't know that I think that that's the right way to approach things. That's not in my view and in the view of most other conventional physicians practicing quality medicine. Um, So, you know, one of the things I say to people is, look, if you went to the doctor and you said, doc, I think maybe I have high blood pressure. And the doc said, yeah, you have high blood pressure. Go get some medicine. You would look at them like they were crazy, right? Mm -hmm. You'd you'd be like, well, what medicine and how do I take it and what's it going to do for me and what are the side effects and what are the long-term effects and when are you going to see me again and how do we know if it's working and all those sorts of things that we think of as just basic to uh, medical care. 
Um, so this idea that's grown up, you know, sort of as a result of the California model, uh, that sort of the doctor just kind of gives you permission and you'll go off into the universe to do whatever. I, I don't find that a particularly compelling way to approach things. Uh, so I take a bit more of a conventional approach, which is that I treat cannabis as a real medicine. I sit with my patients. I spend a lot of time with them. I educate them about cannabis. I give them some fairly specific set of instructions, uh, on how to take it, uh, what preparations of it, uh, of cannabis to use that I think will be most beneficial for them. And then I follow up with them fairly, uh, closely by a combination of email and, and repeat visits. Uh, so uh, that being the case, uh, I get a lot of referrals from my colleagues, uh, and that tends to make my patient population older and sicker. Um, and I think that's that's good as far as I'm concerned. I have, you know, uh, a good handful of sort of 20 to 35-year-olds who have varying issues from Crohn's disease to um anxiety and depression, but the vast majority of my patients are, you know, 50 plus. Uh, pain is the number one complaint. Um, and, and actually, uh, even in the 50 plus crowd, the, the largest numbers of people are sort of uh, 65 to 70 plus. I mean, I've got 90 something year olds who I'm taking care of. Uh, and that's a gas because they're really cool people. Yeah, they find the 90 year olds, they're the ones that uh, were alive when cannabis was still legal. <laughs> Uh, yeah, barely anyway. Barely yes. anyway, that's right. <laughs> yeah. In, in your practice, what's the question you get asked more than any other? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, well, there are, I don't get this question so much anymore, which tells me we're making a little progress, but I do, did for a long time get people saying, Doc, give me the kind of cannabis that doesn't make you high. By and large, that's not something that exists. Um, that is to say, I think that intoxication for patients is a side effect. Um, and as with many other medications, it comes with some side effects and we have to manage them. So that leads me to a discussion with them about how we're going to maximize their benefit and minimize these side effects through the use of different types of preparations or different timing and stuff like that. You know, for some of my patients, they are so ill and incapacitated that any small amount of this intoxication side effect is minuscule compared to the benefit that they're going to get. And even if they're intoxicated, you know, sort of throughout the day, that's not a big deal for them because of the improvement that they have. Um, whereas, you know, some of my patients who are stockbrokers uh, or other financial people or whatever high-powered folk who are actively engaged in their daily work, then, you know, sticking them on something that's going to um, – make their back pain better, yes, but dull their sensorium enough that they may have trouble at work, that's just not doing them a favor. And so that kind of a discussion ensues. Dr. Tischler, do you prescribe um, different levels of THC and CBD to the patients then and tell them to go and check this out? Or do you actually provide the medicine yourself to them as well? Um, no, I do not. Uh, I do not touch the plant in my office. Um, that's actually illegal. Um, 
and on on multiple levels. Um, so I can't do that. What I do for people is I give them um, a very large educational packet, which I then walk them through in the office. And sort of at the end of all of this, after I've educated them about how these things work, then I have this page, which is sort of what I say is this is as close to a prescription as we get. And it, you know, and, and then I sort of outline what I think their ideal regimen should be. Um, and that's uh, a mixture of talking about uh, whether it should be whole flour or some sort of an edible or other types of products, and then also about the potency. So, for example, uh, when I suggest to somebody that they should vaporize flour, typically I will recommend that they go looking for strains that are roughly about 15% THC. Uh, and there are a couple of reasons for that. I don't know whether they want to even get into that, but you know, that's the kind of level of specificity. Sometimes patients come in and they say, well, what strain should I get? Um, and then ensues a fairly lengthy discussion about how I'm less impressed that strains are specifically important, number one. And number two is that in the current state of things, even if you found one particular strain that was, you know, absolutely perfect for you, the chances of being able to get it, even from the same dispensary the next time you go, are limited enough that I tend to talk in in sort of broader terms so that they will be able to find a match when they go. Yeah, you raise a very interesting point because uh, a lot of people put emphasis on strains. But if, Dr. Tischler, if you and I had the same seeds, same strain, and planted them in soil, you planted yours in Boston, we planted ours here in Victoria, British Columbia, the cannabinoid profile would be different from the, from yours and ours because of you know, sunshine, soil, rain, things like that. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we've we've actually had these experiments done we don't even have to postulate you know that you do it in in canada and i do it here you can do them in this in in pots that are relatively near to each other but you simply water one more than the other or um one of them is you know getting more of the direct light in your grow room than the other um and the other thing is you started out by saying if we had two seeds that were the same. What we know actually done in Canada was a good genetic study that showed that when you look at these seeds and you genetically test them, you know, you, if somebody tells you these are seeds of blue dream, you can find out that they, they may or may not actually be the same thing or that the name associated with whatever you think it is doesn't match the, the, the known genome. So there's just so much, um, uh, misinformation about strains out there that it's really hard to kind of put that into clinical practice. And then on top of that is what you're saying, which is even if we did know that the, they were genetically identical, that their chemotypes, what they actually express, are so dependent upon their growing conditions and also their post-growing handling that it's very, very difficult for us to make pronouncements about that. Do you know, the more I find out about this industry, the less I realize that I know it's unbelievable the misinformation and i think one of the problems is and and i'd like to get your thoughts on this it it's the recreational side the stoner side which is doing a disservice to the medical side you know i think we owe the stoners a debt of gratitude um because they have kept 
cannabis, the plant, and some amount of knowledge about it alive for a very long time under such bad conditions. But now that we are trying to bring this into the light, I think that there is a certain amount of disservice that is associated with uh, some of that lore. You know, one of the, a great example that I come sit with my patients is, um, you know, if you are using cannabis by inhalation, you know, the whole Cheech and Chong thing is like you got to hold your breath till you turn blue in the face. Well, it turns out that there was a great study done in 1990, so really ancient history now, that showed that that doesn't change the level of cannabinoids that get into your blood, not at all. And in fact, at the end of the article, the authors, you know, postulate that people thought it was increasing their stoniness because basically they were depriving themselves of oxygen and that made them feel lightheaded. But if you actually measure the blood, <laughs> nothing's going on there. So I tell everyone, you take a deep breath in and you immediately exhale, no holding your breath. But, you know, the point is that some of this stuff is actually known, and yet it, the misinformation is propagated. On the other hand, here's one they got right. We would love, we in the medical community and certainly in the pharmaceutical industry, would love to improve the the reliability and specificity of the cannabis medicine that you take by mouth, right? So there have been lots of attempts to um, put cannabis medicine into capsules, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but it turns out that if you take a capsule full of cannabis oil, the absorption in the gut is downright terrible. It's about 30% absorbed. And interestingly enough, if you take the same dose of cannabis in a brownie or a cookie, it's about 60% absorbed or 100% better. So they got the edible thing right in that regard. Now, there are many other problems with edibles in terms of unreliability of time to onset. Uh, in certain circumstances, the duration of action of edibles, because it's so much longer than that of inhaled, may not be appropriate for every medical condition and those sorts of things. But it is interesting that sort of um, some things without science turned out to be scientifically valid. Dr. Tischler, what's your thoughts on cannabis suppositories? In certain circumstances, I recommend them. One of the things about, um, let's jump back for a second and say that regardless of the cannabis aspect, getting anybody to use a suppository is always an uphill battle. I mean, in the emergency department where I work, um, I've had people sort of jump off the table when I mention it. I'm not even coming at them with a spot (laughs) talking about it, you know, um, and and uh, so, you know, there's ho- that whole aspect of it. Um, where I tend to use suppositories in the cannabis world is when there's an indication for giving somebody a really high dose of THC. Um, and the indications for that are actually fairly uncommon. And this is another area where going back to the stoner side of things, you know, stoners tend to use what I would call unbelievable amounts of this stuff. I see patients who are coming into me and they're taking hundreds of milligrams of THC component, you know, multiple times a day. And I look at that and I think, wow, you know, if you would come to me at the beginning, I would have you doing just as well on 10 milligrams. Um, and, you know, and I know this because I have my 
people who do come to me from zero and who I get on 10 milligrams and they're fine and they're just as sick and just as in pain or whatever you have as these guys who come in from the other side. So there is uh, some concern on my part that people who come into this from using it recreationally or getting their information from recreational users or people who use in a recreational style, although they may identify themselves as a patient, I think that those new patients can then get kind of derailed or pushed off in the wrong direction. Um, But back to your question about suppositories, you know, giving high THC by suppository allows reasonable absorption. It's not brilliant, and it's very dependent upon the manufacturer of the suppository. But um, what it does is it absorbs, it avoids the first pass metabolism in the liver that converts the THC into a metabolite that is responsible for the very prolonged duration that we see with edibles. So that um, I'm able to give people high doses of THC that way without kind of blowing their mind or otherwise incapacitating them. Um, and then adding the CBD in really supra um, physiologic, meaning way more than normal uh, amounts, is also important uh, in that process of trying to keep these folks from sort of being utterly incapacitated. The interesting bit to me is that you can take the CBD by mouth and that's fine, but it, um, you, in those cases you still have to take the THC component of it uh, rectally. What's your thoughts on hormone-driven uh, breast cancers? And the THC CBD levels? I don't know that I really can comment on that. I think that, you know, there are a number of cancers which are very much influenced by um, hormones. Uh, and, you know, in the conventional medical world, we have some pretty good medications that interfere with that hormonal stimulation. And don't get me wrong, they're, they're medicines, they come with their pluses and minuses, um, but I have not seen anything convincing to suggest that cannabis plays a role in that particular modulation of, uh, of cancer uh, biology. Dr. Tischler, in helping people, as you do, with cannabis and understand cannabis and have them uh, take cannabis... There must be some stories that you have, some success stories that really stand out for you. Can you give us a couple? It's a little hard to sort through the success stories to come out with which ones are would be most important. But I think that one of the biggest ones, and you know, there's a particular patient I'm thinking of who is a high-powered attorney um, whose uh, life had just kind of gone in a bad direction. She'd had a car accident, hit her head, and developed a bizarre sort of um, seizure-like disorder. And she was doing very poorly when she met me. Um, She was having a lot of these seizures. She had a lot of physical pain as a result of the car accident that that started all of this. And nobody was able to really help her, in part because it turns out that her seizure activity was not true seizure activity. And also that she was just now on, um, you know, boatloads of the opiates that you would expect that she would be treated with. And then on top of all of that, you know, her family life started to fall apart. Uh, she had a, a, a couple of daughters. Uh, one daughter became very depressed and the other one uh, was self-harming. And so when I met this woman, she was kind of miserable. And we got her on 
cannabis, and um, we were able to treat her pain very effectively. Uh, we were also to, able to treat the, the depression that was a factor in all of this sort of thing, uh, which led to her being able to uh, do two things. Uh, you know, one is that we were able to get her off her opiates, uh, which was a great thing for multiple reasons, safety as well as, you know, the way in which she felt uh, lousy on the opiates. Um, and then I think also part of it was that in her recovery from her own depression, she was able to understand and accept the fact that her seizure-like activity was not neurologically based and needed to be addressed in another fashion, which then allowed her to actually address it and do much better. Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that once she started to do better, she was able to have the time and wherewithal to, you know, look after her daughters more closely. And the last time I saw her, she was doing really well personally. And also both of her daughters were sort of on the up and up. And I think that that's, you know, a major success story um, of cannabis not only sort of as a treatment for opiates, et cetera, or pain, but sort of in the broader context of her multifocal illness and the holistic picture that then even spills out into the care of her dependents and the people who need her. Yeah, absolutely. Dr. Tischler, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, you're you're in, a, the, in the vanguard of a, a very new industry, and I'm sure we'll have a chat again in the future. I appreciate your time. I look forward to that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Tischler. And that's it. Another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Wherever you are in the world, thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at DopeHistory.com.